This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Garcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to the Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hollywood adores a lovable rogue. Pirates are often depicted as wisecracking, kind-hearted individuals who set out for treasure but end up righting a wrong. In the end, they usually get the girl and the treasure. In 1926, moviegoers enjoyed The Black Pirate with Douglas Fairbanks Sr. as a young man who joins a pirate crew to exact revenge for killing his father. And yes, the script follows the age-old formula well. In 1935, Pirates returned to the silver screen with Errol Flynn as Captain Blood. And of course, in 2003 came the tremendously popular Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Storytelling has no shortage of beloved characters, from Captain Jack Sparrow to Captain Hook and Long John Silver, and many in between. Pirates are profitable, for publishers and Hollywood alike. Along with books and film, a new pirate emerged in the 1970s. While they didn't hijack boats, they did seek a way to make money off the work of others. Woody Wise picked up his kids from school on a Friday afternoon and never returned home. Instead, they went on the run from the FBI. As it turns out, Wise had been pirating films. When the FBI agents arrived at his house, they carted away dozens of movies. He had once owned and operated his own theater, but television had cut into his profits. Movies were what he knew, and so he looked for a way to make more money with them. Wise befriended people working in a movie studio shipping department responsible for getting films into theaters. Yes, back then, movie theaters still used reels of film. Then he waited. When a new film came out, it opened in theaters nationwide. After a few weeks, theaters needed fewer reels, and that's when Wise saw a side hustle. He sold the extras, making about $575 for each copy. The FBI, though, caught Wise. Lucky for him, he received only a hefty fine. Today, books, movies, TV, and streaming shows are frequently pirated and either sold or given away for all to see. It's estimated that pirated videos alone are viewed 230 billion times a year. And just like it had during the age of piracy, that theft comes at a cost. It's estimated that U.S. companies lose $71 billion each year to piracy. Worldwide, those numbers are even higher, over $97 billion. And that's just in the movie industry alone. 
It isn't a victimless crime, either. Over 70,000 people in the music industry have lost their jobs. Publishers have lost over $300 million. Authors have lost significant portions of their income, and bookstores have suffered as well. Digital piracy might get its name from the people who once hijacked ships at sea, but it's hardly romantic. Pirates. The word itself hints at a story and captures our attention. It doesn't matter if that story comes from some self-justification for digital piracy, a swashbuckling fictional character, or the real-life men and women who sailed the seas during the golden age of piracy. Because if the story stars a pirate, folks have always been intrigued. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Pirates. Alexander was born in 1676, in a small Scottish town where everyone knew everyone. He had six brothers, and his father, John Selcraig, worked as a shoemaker and a tanner in Lower Largo. By all accounts, Alexander was a wild child, constantly causing trouble in town and at home. And though he was the youngest, he repeatedly beat up his siblings. His mother sent him away, claiming that she wanted more for her youngest child and hoped that he would find his fortune at sea. Other sources say that she may have just wanted her young troublemaker out of the house. Six years later, he returned home and went right back to his mischievous and law-breaking ways. He'd gotten away with most of his behavior in his youth, but this time he would go too far. While the records don't clarify what exactly he did, authorities charged him with indecent behavior inside a church. To avoid the consequences, he skipped town and changed his last name to Selkirk. Of course, the court simply deferred the charges. Alexander found work at sea, and with his talent for navigation and mathematics, he quickly became an officer. His return to sea proved timely, too. The War of Spanish Secession gave Alexander options. He no longer had to choose between merchant and navy vessels. Privateering offered better pay. He joined the expedition captained by a man named William Dampier in 1703. The Lord Admiral had given them letters of mark, granting the crew the right to attack enemy vessels. Dampier commanded the St. George and gave Captain Charles Pickering the command of his second ship, the Sink Points. Alexander served as Pickering's sailing master. The job required someone with a formal education, as reading and piloting were considered a senior officer's role. Aside from reading maps, if they even had one, the sailing master also had to consider storms and the currents. While Alexander enjoyed the respect that came with his title, he didn't reciprocate it. He didn't think much of Dampier. The captain's previous work as a buccaneer put him at odds with captaining a navy ship. In fact, a previous ship that he had commanded sank. And although Dampier had been cleared of any charges surrounding the incident, that moment followed him wherever he went. Morale was non-existent, and the crew suffered from a lack of provisions. Diseases like dysentery and scurvy were prevalent, and rats had infested the ship. An outbreak of scurvy plagued the crew while they sailed just off the coast of Brazil, killing Pickering and several other men. Thomas Stradling, Pickering's lieutenant, became the Sink Point's new captain. In Alexander's opinion, Stradling was egotistical and lacked the necessary experience. Most of the crew shared this assessment of the new captain, causing discord and talk of mutiny. A combination of events fueled Alexander's bad temper. He not only argued with Dampier, but he was also butting heads with Stradling. The crew thought their sailing master and their new captain were both equally arrogant. Disagreements between the two usually became a battle of wills. The crew sailed to the uninhabited island called Juan Fernandez for a few days rest and hopefully to find some supplies. 
When Strandling ordered the men to load the ship, Alexander refused. Instead of asking his fellow sailors to overtake the captain, he suggested they refuse to sail and remain on the island instead. He reminded them of the poor conditions, their terrible treatment, and missed opportunities to raid ships. Stradling gave him an ultimatum, though. Either the sailing master got on the ship, or he stayed behind alone. Alexander refused to give in, and so he watched as his fellow crew members made several trips to transfer supplies to the sink point. He stood on the shoreline defiantly as the men loaded the last of the small boats. Marooning someone was one of the harshest punishments ever handed down. Still, he must have felt he had nothing to fear. He hadn't committed a crime typically punishable by marooning. Surely, they would come back to get him. But with the last load, the men got into the skiffs one final time. Still, he refused to join them. So they waved him off and pushed away from shore. And that's when Alexander realized the gravity of his decision. He had just marooned himself. San Fernandez Island was remote, just over 418 miles west of Valparaiso, Chile. Few ever passed, much less stopped. He'd been convinced that his shipmates would have chosen him over straddling. He had called their bluff and lost. Few people survived a marooning, although Charles Vane and Bartholomew Roberts had both been fortunate to do so. And history would eventually tell us that in 1821, Captain Barnabas Lincoln and a small crew survived as well. Pirates had captured their ship and left them on a small island barely three feet above sea level. They had been left a blanket, a pot, and a few provisions. Of the twelve men, all but one lived to tell the tale. But for twenty days, the men were on their own. In 1718, part of Captain William Greenway's crew mutinied for refusing to turn pirate. They left him and a handful of others marooned on an anchored sloop incapable of sailing. Being the only one who could swim, Williams went to shore and returned with food. The pirates came back and forced him into piracy, but left the others. Eventually, the pirates were captured, and a Spanish sloop returned to rescue the surviving men. For many sailors, if exposure, storms, starvation, or dehydration didn't kill them, a bullet did. You see, crews often left the marooned sailor with a pistol and a single bullet, giving them a choice to die a slow death or end their life by their own hand. But even that posed a dilemma. They had been damned to die on an island, but death by suicide, in their eyes at least, meant damning their souls to hell. And Alexander was well aware of the survival rates of maroon sailors. He was also aware that he hadn't been left a pistol. He had no extra clothes, or a blanket, or a single provision. And yet there he stood, with his feet in the sand, watching his fellow crewmen make their way back to the sink point. When he realized they meant to take him up on his threat, he ran into the water, shouting and waving at them to come back. At first, they ignored his cries, and then they called back, reminding him that he had made his choice. His attitude and attempt to cause a mutiny had been his undoing, they reminded him, and his general disposition would no longer be their problem. He watched and called until all were boarded and the ship sailed from sight. He fared better than most, though. The island had a good supply of fresh water. Spaniards who had once used the island had also left behind a small population of goats. He found edible herbs, wild plums, cabbages, and other vegetation. Alexander learned to overcome the lack of knives and pots to eat and cook with. Over time, he managed to domesticate the goats, too. He refused to fish, hating the taste without salt. And the goats became more useful than just food, too. When his pants and shirt wore thin, he used goatskin for clothing, 
and even for the walls of his hut. He even domesticated a few feral cats, which helped with the other animal that the Spanish had left behind, rats. Regardless of the species, the animals kept him company, and Alexander often danced in his tent to pass the time and even sang to the animals. Instead of wasting away, he thrived on the diet, which was much better than what some sailors and peasants ate. With ample food and water, he could only wait and hope that a passing ship would find him. And one day, that's what he saw off the coast. Alexander might not have known what day it was, or how many months had passed since he'd seen another human being, but he cheered and breathed a sigh of relief. His ordeal was finally over, and then he caught sight of the flag, and fear replaced joy. The flag was Spanish, and that meant the men on board were more likely to kill him than rescue him. He hastily disguised his camp and then shimmied up a tree. The men arrived and walked around for a while and even used the tree to relieve themselves. And then they left. Alexander was alone with the animals once more, and it would be a very long time before he ever saw another ship. In 1708, privateer Woods Rogers set out on an expedition. The British government and merchants sponsored his voyage, and both wanted the same outcome, to impede the Spanish financially and hinder their military might. And the crew looked forward to a profitable voyage since the British government had waived their usual 20% cut from any raids, and that allowed Rogers to negotiate with Bristol merchants to supply capital for two ships and their crews. Investors would receive a share of the plunder upon the crew's return. Rogers captained a 310-ton frigate named the Duke, and gave command of the Duchess, the smaller ship, to Stephen Courtney. The ships and crew set sail from Ireland in September of 1708. Rogers developed a reputation of a tough but fair captain. When some of the men had gambled away everything they had, including their clothing, he banned gambling. The men worked hard, too, and Rogers rewarded them well. He made sure his men had good food and decent medical care. And of course, he supplied them with plenty of alcohol. At times, disagreements would crop up between captain and crew. Once, the crew even mutinied when Rogers refused to attack ships from neutral governments. That same fate had befallen Captain Kidd a few years before, but Rogers managed to regain control quickly and continued his expedition. They raided several French vessels in 1708 and 1709, bringing in substantial profits. But later in 1709, lack of fruit caused a scurvy outbreak, and to prevent another mutiny, Rogers set course for a nearby island hoping to restock. He hadn't expected to find anyone living there. Yet, as the landing party approached, a man with long hair and a beard, wearing fur clothing, anxiously hopped from one bare foot to the other and waved at them frantically. When the men met, Alexander Selkirk told Rogers everything, how he'd come to be marooned and how he managed to stay alive. The two compared dates, determining that Alexander had been on the tiny island for roughly four years. The next boat arrived, and Alexander couldn't believe who stepped onto shore. There before him stood William Dampier. It turns out Rogers hadn't known about the former captain's court-martial, or his previous command of the St. George. The truth about that came out after a lot of questions and talk. After Alexander had been marooned, disaster had struck the crew aboard the Sink Point. Their ship had sank, leaving Stradling and the others stranded. After that, the Spanish had captured them, imprisoning them for piracy. And in the end, Alexander had survived, while his fellow crewmen had not. With this sort of blemished work record, Dampier had honestly been lucky to find a job at all, let alone as a pilot. 
Rogers was so impressed with Alexander that he invited him to join the crew on the expedition. Surprisingly, though, he refused. He told Rogers that he would rather remain on the island and die there than serve on a ship with Dampier. So Rogers solved the matter by taking him aboard the Duke and keeping Dampier on the Duchess, and Alexander agreed. The arrangement delighted Woods Rogers, but not nearly as much as listening in great detail about his newfound friend's story of survival. To his credit, Alexander returned to life at sea as though he had never left, and Rogers soon promoted him to second mate. They continued their journey, bringing in substantial amounts of treasure along the way. And when they returned to England to a hero's glory, Alexander sailed with them as part of the crew. But life was never the same for him. Although the privateering had made him wealthy, Alexander said that he had never been so happy as those years on the island. Eventually, he took to the seas again and died of yellow fever in 1721. Woods Rogers began to think of publishing an account of their journey, but crew member Edward Cook beat him to it. Rogers wrote a more detailed version months later. And while both books mentioned Alexander, Rogers' retelling fascinated readers the most. He had spent the most time in Alexander's company, after all, and he spent all of those evenings journaling what he had learned during their conversations. The War of Spanish Secession ended, leaving readers wanting more tales of the high seas. So Rogers penned a cruising voyage around the world, detailing their successful plunders and journey, along with detailed material of Alexander's marooning. Rogers' telling easily outsold Edward Cook's. The story captivated readers around the globe and inspired a whole new genre of seafaring tales. Woods Rogers, the man who brought the golden age of piracy to heel, could never have foreseen that his book would inspire authors to write about pirates. Fact or fiction, people couldn't get enough of them. This season, we've visited many of those stories here. We're fascinated with women like Grania O'Malley, Anne Bonny, and Ching Shi, who all proved as fierce as their male counterparts. And legends like Blackbeard, William Kidd, and Benjamin Hornigold never get old. There's Sam Bellamy, the romantic pirate, and of course the amusing Steed Bonnet, while Edward Lowe and Charles Vane will firmly remain the villains of the bunch. Woods Rogers inspired one author to write about these real-life pirates, too. In 1724, Charles Rivington hawked books near St. Paul's Cathedral. We've mentioned the book, A General History of Pirates, written by Captain Charles Johnson. The book detailed events surrounding the most infamous and notorious pirates to sail the Caribbean. The first three editions of the book sold out. The two-volume set, sold in 1726, included additional pirates, too. No one knew who Captain Johnson was, though. While the author seemingly had a great deal of nautical knowledge, it became clear no such captain ever existed, and the author had used a pen name. Many people suspect he was actually Daniel Defoe, who had written the widely popular Robinson Crusoe in 1719. That story, if you remember, follows the adventures of a man shipwrecked on an island. It's assumed that Defoe took inspiration from Woods Rogers' telling of Alexander Selkirk's marooning. But Defoe wasn't the only one smitten with pirates and Woods Rogers' book. A young Scottish author spent a rainy afternoon with his young son. On one particularly dreary day, he created a treasure hunt to pass the time. By the end of the day, though, the author had such a great time that he began to work on a story. Ideas swirled in his head, along with Woods Rogers' story about fellow Scot, Alexander Selkirk. The author wanted a story full of adventure, gold, pirates, 
and buried treasure. He created vivid characters, including a one-legged man with a parrot on his shoulder. It was a magazine called Young Folks that published the first installment of The Sea Cook in 1881. Although the author suffered a few health setbacks, he kept writing, and by 1882, he had added an additional 17 chapters to the first. And it's a story that's still adapted and read today, with characters like Captain Flint, Long John Silver, Billy Bones, and Jim Hawkins. And the author? Robert Louis Stevenson. And the final title of that book? Oh, you already know the answer by now, I'm sure. The classic adventure novel, Treasure Island. Pirates have captivated us from the time they first sailed the seas, and although Blackbeard and Bellamy no longer hoist their flags, their spirits live on in the stories we tell. Much like the tale of the Pirate Princess from this season's very first episode, we love them so much that we honestly don't care if they're true or not. And with that in mind, we've got one final story in the cargo hold for you to enjoy. Stick around after this brief sponsor break, and my crewmate, Ali Steed, will tell you all about it took 11 years to get to the sale the nix anniversary sale is on now at knix.com celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of nix's biggest sales of the year get 30 percent off all leak proof apparel from the number one leak proof brand in north america including period underwear swimwear activewear and more Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive bonus content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. Got it. Most ships avoided the area. The sea had a dubious reputation as the most pirate-infested waters on Earth. Authorities repeatedly warned ships to steer clear. Sailing into those waters was like swimming with sharks. 
Yet one captain chose to ignore the warnings. His crew of 20 had been well-versed in pirate attacks and he had cargo to deliver. Though the crew disagreed with the decision to stay on course, the captain had final say and overrode them. They pushed onward, making good time towards their destination and kept a watchful eye on the horizon for other ships. In the early dawn hours that April, four armed pirates aboard a small skiff approached the cargo ship. An alert was sounded, sending men scrambling from their beds. As it stood, the ship was too big to outrun the pirates. All they could do was try to stop them from boarding. Training taught them that pirates would likely shoot at the bridge first. Crew member Mike Perry ushered the others on board to a safer location. Then he used the ship's rudder to swamp the pirate's skiff. Still, the pirates closed in. Perry removed part of the ship's control from the bridge and crew member Matt Fisher controlled the steering gear. After sending off a few flares to signal distress, the ship went black, meaning that when the pirates boarded, they wouldn't be able to control it. Perry, Fisher, and some of the other crew remained hidden and barricaded in a room. They listened for the sound of the inevitable. That came at daybreak, when the pirates tossed a grappling hook aboard and they heard it catch. Not long after came the captain's chilling words, the bridge has been compromised. Then the captain fell silent. Perry and Fisher didn't have to see the pirates to know the captain and those with him had already been taken hostage. If they were still alive, the pirates would probably come for them next. Perry waited outside the secured room, armed with only a knife. The dark compartment served as his only advantage. The pirate's leader entered, brandishing a gun. For a while, pirate and sailor engaged in a deadly game of cat and mouse. After a few tense moments, Perry stabbed the pirate and managed to take him hostage. The room where the rest of the crew was hiding had grown stiflingly hot and they couldn't stay inside much longer. But now they had a hostage of their own and negotiations began. For a while, it looked like the pirates were willing to exchange their leader for the captain. But at the last minute, the pirates forced the captain into one of the lifeboats and fled. In response to the hijacking, the US Navy sent a destroyer and a frigate to the area while the pirates awaited their own backup. Once naval ships arrived, the situation became a standoff. With each advancing hour, the predicament became dire. Another band of pirates had recently captured four other vessels not far away. They were en route with 54 hostages they planned to use as human shields. Three days into the standoff, a frustrated pirate fired on a frigate, striking no one luckily. Four days into the situation, snipers killed three pirates on the lifeboat and rescued the captain. Authorities took the surviving pirate to the US and charged him with conspiracy to seize a ship by force, conspiracy to commit hostage taking, and piracy. In the golden age, he would have been hanged. Instead, the court sentenced Abdullahi Muse to 33 years in prison. If this story sounds familiar, it's because it happened recently, in 2009 off the coast of Somalia. Captain Phillips returned home safely, as did the rest of the crew aboard the MV Marisk, Alabama. There's no question that pirates still exist. In 2010, they attacked 445 ships, taking 1,181 people hostage. From January to March of 2011, there were 119 pirate attacks, 83 off the coast of Somalia. Four Americans were killed after pirates attacked their sailboat. Though attacks are fewer today than they were 10 years ago, they are becoming more violent and often fatal. Policing waters is difficult, and pirates often fly different countries' flags to hide their intent. And like the Golden Age, piracy still has political roots. Reportedly, authorities and governments are connected to some of these attacks. Today, pirate hotspots around the world are the northeastern coast of South America, Iraq, Bangladesh, the Malacca Straits near Indonesia, Nigeria, and Somalia. We've come a long way since pirates roamed the high seas, stalking colonial coasts for prizes. But then again, reality or fiction, they've never really left. Stick around for a few more minutes to find out what's next from Grim and Mild Presents. Pirates was executive produced by Aaron Mankey and narrated by Aaron Mankey and Alexander Steed. 
Writing for this season was provided by Michelle Muto with research by Alexandra Steed and Sam Alberti. Production assistance was provided by Josh Thane, Jesse Funk, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about this and other shows from Grim and Mild and iHeartRadio, visit GrimAndMild.com. The scribe sat down to do his work. It was just like any other day. He was in the business of copying and pasting millennia before we had computers to do the job for us. Bent over the page, he carefully scratched out over 400 lines of hieroglyphs. This was a really important project. The document he was copying was already over a thousand years old, and its preservation was important. But although he was a master of his craft, he was a bit out of his depth with what he was transcribing. The source document talked about the human body from the top down and from the inside out, and this scribe was encountering glyphs he had never seen before. He scratched out his errors and made notes in the margins, his writing implement clumsily making strokes for characters unfamiliar to him. In fact, according to later scholars, he created the earliest known asterisks in the history of bookmaking. But what did make it onto his page was really marvelous stuff. A collection of anatomical case studies, and a treatise detailing scientific procedures for dealing with various injuries. And then, in the middle of his project, somewhere between the thorax and the spinal column, he quit. No one knew why. Not James Henry Breasted or any of the Egyptologists who came before him. It had landed on his desk in 1920, already estimated to be 3,500 years old. But James saw something important and alarming. When the scribe started writing again, he started copying something completely different. Magical incantations to fight pestilence, spells to manage women's health concerns, and tricks to make old men young again. James and his fellow Egyptologists didn't know for sure, but they suspected that this ancient scribe was unaware of the importance of the work he'd left unfinished, and James would go on to spend years poring over it. It proved to be a singular, remarkable artifact— the earliest known evidence of human dissection as a practice, a blueprint for ancient scientific surgery. Experts believe that the original document, copied by the scribe, was known as the Secret Book of the Physician and had originally circulated more than 5,000 years ago. This document was important because it gave evidence of a stark departure from folk medicine and magic, replacing it with rational scientific observation. It represented a remarkable moment in time, when people were finally pulling the body apart and going inside of it to seek out answers to its deepest mysteries. Sadly, James and his contemporaries never found the source document, and because of that, we might never know how the original book ended. What did the ancient Egyptians know about our inner workings? And how long ago did they know it? How much was lost, only to need to be rediscovered again in a different time? and a different place. For the moment, it seems like it's lost to history. But the quest continues. And as a story, it illustrates a powerful idea. Even today, we're still hard at work adding to our body of knowledge. I'm Aaron Mankey, and welcome to Bedside Manners. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, 
In the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Garcella finally tells his story, and so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.